last five weeks, we've been focused on unshakable and, and cultivating unshakable hope. And, and in many ways, this is an outpouring of that or an outgrowth of that as we turn our attention to our Advent series, which I've titled, A Weary World Rejoices. In the last five weeks, we've been talking about how shakable our world is and how thankful we can be for our unshakable God. And yet all that shakableness of the world, all the craziness, all the chaos that surrounds us can be extremely wearisome. And sometimes we can just feel it, feel the weight of it, or see the weight of it in the eyes of the people around us. And so Christmas is a time to rejoice. Christmas is a time for a weary world to rejoice. In spite of the weariness, we choose to fix our eyes and to focus our attention on our unshakable God and his unshakable love for us, seen so clearly in Christmas. And we rejoice because of the hope that we have in Christ because of the hope that we have in the unshakable kingdom of God, which he brought to earth. And so I'd like you to think about your favorite Christmas song as we begin. And think about, if you're anything like me, you have more than one. If, if you're anything like me, you, you have a hard time picking five, or, or maybe you do subsets, and so you have your top five singable songs, and you have your top five unsingable songs. Like for me, my favorite Christmas carol to not try to sing is the carol of the bells. I just love to listen to the carol of the bells, but who can sing that, right? You get, you get a good start, and then pretty soon you're just like, because that's all you can really do. It goes so fast, and, and you know, even if you have the lyrics in front of you, it can be a challenge to sing that one. But my favorite one to sing is O Holy Night. And so when the idea for this series came together, I really thought there's something there and the idea of a weary world rejoicing and even some of the the phrases from the lyrics of that song will form the titles of our sermons as we move through this week and and I can remember singing that song to my kids, to my boys as I rocked them to sleep. Year round, I sing Christmas carols. I'm just one of those guys. You know, I always put a Christmas CD or two into my CD player in my car in July and have Christmas in July. Uh, It's just... It's just how I roll. But I would sing O Holy Night probably more than any other. And I, it's just so gospel-centered. It's, it's, it just tells the story of the gospel, of the Christmas story, and all that it means to us. And so we'll be focusing on that, but not overdoing it, okay? It'll be very scriptural. And we'll start with the God's word each week and build upon that around that central theme. And so I I hope that you're excited about Christmas and as about Advent as I am. And uh, today we're going to look at the idea of a long lay the world. Long lay the world. And if you know the song, long lay the world in sin and error, pining. How many of you have used the word pining in that form in the last week? Not very many, but they were awaiting something to come. They were awaiting salvation. From Genesis 3 on, a Savior, a Messiah, was promised. And the entire Old Testament points to this Messiah, to this promised Savior. Through the covenants with Noah and Abraham and Moses, 
through the exile and the return and the 400 silent years that came just before Jesus returned or came to earth the first time. The entire Old Testament points to this Savior, to this Messiah. And on that first advent when Jesus came to Israel, to God's chosen people, they had been waiting for longer than any of us can really imagine. They had been waiting. In fact, Romans 8 tells us that the entire creation was waiting and is waiting for the full culmination of everything that is to come. So this is not just, not just an isolated people. This is a whole world, the whole creation waiting, whether they know it or not. And many Old Testament prophecies pointed to the coming Messiah, pointed to that Savior coming to the world. And perhaps the most famous is the one that we've looked at several times already through our Advent reading and through a little video. But it comes from Isaiah chapter 9, and so I want to look at Isaiah 9 this morning and a couple of other passages that we'll get into. And if you have one of the Bibles here in the sanctuary, it's on page 1072. And I just want to read it to you, and then we'll step back from it a little bit and walk back through it. But Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2 say that, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea near the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. Now that was written in about 740 A.D., 735, 740, uh, by the prophet Isaiah, who was a prophet that you can read about in some of the other passages uh, in Scripture, some of the historical books. It was written before the Assyrian exile, before the nation of Assyria came in and just annihilated the, the, peop- the northern kingdom of Israel and carted them off. So it was before that, but it was after the heights of the kingdoms of David and Solomon. So it's kind of in this in-between time that, that Isaiah is writing this. And as we'll see, these two verses tell us a lot. This passage, I should say, tells us a lot. It gives us a lot of information. It tells us where the Messiah will come. It tells us what is being promised. It tells us who it is that is coming and how This will all come to pass when we get into verses 6 and 7. But in this whole passage, what is conspicuously absent is when. When is all this going to happen? And as it turned out, well over 700 years took place between the time that Isaiah wrote this prophecy and when it actually came to pass. That meant that many generations lived and died while they were waiting, waiting for this Messiah. They lived and died through foreign kingdoms coming and and assaulting their land and and winning and, and carting them off and then coming back and then silent years where there was no revelation, where there was no prophecy, and then the onset of Rome. And so by the time Jesus finally arrived, they'd been waiting for over 700 years Perhaps as many as 20 or more generations had lived and died. And as we all know, waiting can be incredibly wearisome, can't it? 
Whether you're waiting for God to move or waiting for things to change or or waiting for something to end or something to begin, waiting can be incredibly wearisome. And so I wonder today as Advent begins, what are you waiting for? What What are you waiting for? How do you put yourself in this story of the Israelites waiting and waiting and waiting for their Messiah. What are you waiting for today? Perhaps it's a resolution of some sort, something to be resolved. Maybe it's relief from pressure or pain or conflict. Maybe you're waiting for revenge. Somebody's hurt you and you're bitter. Maybe you're waiting for a healing to take place or an opportunity to come your way or for a loved one that you've been praying for to come to salvation, to step into the truth and step into the light and step into a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you're waiting for something else, something entirely different. But we all can agree that waiting can be very wearisome, especially when we don't know how long we're going to wait, when there's not a finish line. It's so much easier to wait for next Tuesday when you, you know when next Tuesday is going to be here. It's harder to wait when we're not quite sure when what we're waiting for will come. And if we're not careful, the weariness of waiting can bring out the worst in us. The weariness of waiting without knowing when or maybe even if what we're waiting for is going to come to pass, the weariness that comes from that can bring out The worst in us, anger, bitterness, resentment can grow. Waiting and the weariness that comes from waiting is fertile soil for all kinds of bad things to grow in our lives. And these only make the waiting worse. They only make the interval of time between what we're waiting for and when we receive it worse. And if we're not careful... We can become our biggest enemies while we wait. We can become, we can lose sight of the hope that we have. We can lose faith while we wait. And the way we respond to the waiting and the weariness that accompanies it can bring out the worst in us if we're not careful. But I really believe (laughs) that waiting and suffering can also bring out the best in us. It can also bring out more faith, more hope, and even more joy as we dive deeper into our unshakable God, into this God who loves us so much, as we dive deeper into the faith that we have and the hope that we have. Waiting can bring out the best in us. And I was reminded this week of a a quote from Tim Keller that says, if you build your life on God... Even suffering will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. Isn't that a beautiful picture? That if we build our lives on God, on his word, on his unshakable kingdom, on the hope that we have in him, on the faith that we have in him, then even suffering can drive us deeper into the source of our joy. And we really can experience joy in the midst of suffering. And the converse is true. If we build our lives on ourselves or if we build our lives on the absence of something in our life, then our suffering will drive us deeper into that. And it was John the Baptist who said, 
he must increase, I must decrease. And so if we build our lives on God, if we build our lives on his word, if we build our lives on fellowship and worship and prayer and service to other people and all of the things the Bible tells us to do, if we build our lives on those things, then even suffering, even waiting, even the weariness that comes with that can drive us deeper into the source of our joy. And I was reminded of 2017. 2017 was a year of waiting for me in particular and for our family. In late 2016, kind of over Christmas break, we had gotten away. Heather and I had gotten some perspective to kind of stitch everything together. We had left a senior pastor position in West Virginia at the end of 2015, had come to an executive pastor position at a larger church in early, well, late 2015, early 2016. And over the course of that year had become increasingly and painfully evident that I really felt called back to a senior pastor position. Probably shouldn't have left the one that I had or at least not left that role. And so in an effort to end well, I had shared this with leadership and and let them know where we were feeling and began pursuing those senior pastor positions in early 2017. And right out of the gate, we had three really great opportunities from what I could see come on. They were all bigger churches than where I had been before. They were prominent. There was a lot of things to like about them. They were in communities that we would have enjoyed being a part of. We advanced through some of the the, uh, interview processes, and uh, we were second on two and third on one of them. So we didn't get any of them. And I went into a little bit of a tailspin as those cards started to fall. And as I shared a couple of weeks ago, found myself at my lowest point, I think, in my whole life at Easter of 2017. Fortunately, God helped me make a radical turn, and the remainder of 2017 was much better, but it was still waiting. We were still feeling called in a certain direction and still waiting for that to come to pass. And as opportunities would come and, and we would go and we would, we would move through that process, now we're feeling like red flags and don't go and, and we're getting positions offered to us and churches offered to us and, and feeling like God is saying no and we're saying, yeah, but that means more waiting and we're tired of waiting. We don't want to wait anymore. So we had to really wrestle through that and we said no to several opportunities and yet I stand here today and feel like Linwood in many ways was our reward for waiting, for saying no for going through the uncertainty and the difficulty that comes with it, not knowing what's next. Yet we stand before you today and feel like we came to a great place, a great fit, a great, really everything. We can see how God was protecting us from other situations and helping us. And so I understand that it's not easy to wait. And I didn't do it very well at the beginning, to be honest with you. And I can't take much credit for the turn. I think God gets all the credit for that. Yet it can not only bring out the worst in us, it can bring out the best in us. And my relationship with my Lord and Savior grew in ways that I can't even probably put into words the second half of 2017 as we waited and as we waited and as we waited. And so if we look at this passage again, we'll see that it tells us where and what and who and how, even though it doesn't say a word about when. In verse 1, it tells us where this is going to take place. It tells us that in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. God is giving specific revelation of where this Messiah will come. 
to Galilee of the Gentiles, which is significant in a number of ways. Because Galilee is in the northern part of the nation of Israel. It's right up on the edge of what you might call the nations. It's, it's sort of a buffer zone between Judah proper, Israel proper, and Jerusalem moving to the north and to the nations or to the whole world, to the rest of the world. It's in a fringe space between there. So it's not saying that God, the Messiah, the Savior is going to show up in Jerusalem. He's saying, no, it's, it's going to come. A little town called Nazareth, which is revealed in other prophecies. In Galilee of the Gentiles, it's not just a savior for Israel showing up in the heart of Israel. It's a savior for the whole world showing up on the the space between Israel proper and between the whole world. That's where the Messiah would come. So verse 1 tells us where. Verse 2 tells us what is coming, what is going to take place. Verse 2 says that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. It's talking about a paradigm-shifting event. It's talking about a shift from darkness and uncertainty to light and to full revelation, to be able to walk and to see and to move in the light of God's love. It's telling us that they'll no longer be walking in darkness, but they'll be seeing a great light, that they're they're not going to live in the shadow of the death of the shadow of death anymore, but they're going to walk in the light, live in the light, because a new light is dawning. And if you continue just a little farther in verses six and seven, we find out who is coming and how this will come to pass, right? Verse six tells us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. It's telling us that a child, a son, a king is coming. That's who is coming. That's who the Messiah will be. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. That's how it will come to pass. So that's who, that's where, that's what, that's how. When is still conspicuously absent. But here's why. Here's why this matters so much. And here's why we're talking about it at the beginning of this Advent series. Because how we wait and what we do in and with the weariness of waiting really matters. How we wait and what we do with the weariness that accompanies waiting really matters. You could say, It's a weighty matter. (laughs) Couldn't resist. You see, we are called and we are empowered to live in the light. That light has dawned. We no longer have to walk in darkness. When the light dawns in our own lives, individually, each and every one of us, as we come to Christ, a light dawns and a spirit, the spirit of God, comes into us, intersects our spirit, and we are now called to walk in the light, to live in the light in the light while we wait, even when we are weary. And so a passage like Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 through 11 
tells us very clearly, for you once were darkness. Not just in darkness, but we were darkness before Christ, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. These are the marching orders for the people of God. These are the, if you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you has, have accepted his death on the cross as the payment for the, the penalty that your sin deserves, if you're in relationship with him, then these are our marching orders to, to live as people of light, to live as children of the light, to be light in a dark world. So rather than laying with the rest of the world in sin and error pining, we walk in righteousness and truth, rejoicing in our Savior, keeping in step with the Spirit. Do you see how this is all connected together? We walk in righteousness and truth, rejoicing in the hope that we have as the people of God. And another passage really fleshes this out when when Peter is relaying His salvation story, telling his testimony to kings and princes as he makes his way to Rome under Roman, Roman, uh, he's, he's been arrested and he's making his way and appealing to Caesar. He's giving his testimony and he does this several different times. And the last time he does it in Acts 26, he relates a conversation that he had with Jesus, with his Savior. And what Jesus told him. In verses 17 and 18 of Acts 26, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus was telling Paul his mission was going to be. And by extension, we have a mission. We have a mission Field. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe it's your coworkers. Maybe it's maybe it's somebody in a foreign country, and God's going to send you there or partner you with somebody who's there, so that you can be a part of taking the light into the world. And he's basically saying a weary world lays in sin, and it's waiting to rejoice. It doesn't know what we know. It doesn't have the hope that we have, and so we have to share the hope that we have. We have to share the good news of the gospel with the people who are waiting, whether they realize it or not, because Jesus is sending us to them with good news. Jesus is sending us who have the light, who are light in the Lord, into a dark world to be the light in places that it's not reaching without us. There are a lot of people not sitting in a church this morning. Not just because it's a holiday weekend. They're they're never sitting in a church. They're never hearing the good news. They don't listen to Christian radio. They don't read the word of God. And it's the people like us who do that are sent to them to bring light into their life. So that, in verse 18, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. The so that, the purpose behind all of this light bearing is that people would find forgiveness and people would step into holiness. That people would have their sins forgiven, that they would be cleansed, that they would then begin a relationship with Jesus, have the light come into them and become light bearers and live lives of holiness. And and 
reproduces itself over and over again because our bottom line is true. How we wait and what we do with our weariness matters. How we wait. How we live out our waiting. How we handle the weariness that accompanies waiting. It matters. It matters to the people who aren't yet believers. The people who are still walking in darkness, still stumbling around. They need light to come to them. They need people to come to them. And Christmas is such an amazing opportunity. Billions and billions of dollars have been spent marketing for Jesus, even though most people don't think that's what it's about. That's what it's about. They need to hear what it's about. The whole world's attention is on Christmas. And we have an opportunity to help connect the dots for people, to help people understand what this is all about and what is really happening at Christmas. Because as we await Christ's return, we can rejoice that he has come. And we must rejoice in the hope that we have. We cannot allow the weariness to dampen or to cover the light that we have. How many of you sang that little song in Sunday school? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. We have to. Especially at Christmas. Especially when there are people walking in darkness in the midst of all the lights that are added to the world at Christmas. We have to connect the dots. That's why the, I love putting up Christmas lights. I'm somewhere between, on a scale of one and Clark, to Clark Griswold, I'm, I'm closer to Clark Griswold, right? We put up a lot of lights, thousands. But right at the front and center is a cross, about an eight-foot-tall cross, and it's wrapped in light. And at the, at the feet and at the hands, the lights are red to remind people what Christmas is really all about. We were putting that up this, this year. Somebody even pulled in, pulled over next to us, said, thank you so much for putting up that cross. It's a favorite thing in our neighborhood. Thanks for putting that up instead of all that other hokey stuff. Is <laughs> the way they put it. I was like, oh, well, we have some hokey stuff. We have a penguin, right? <laughs> Gotta love the penguin. But Jesus is front and center. And as we turn our sights toward Christmas, as we enter into Advent, what we do with our weariness and how we wait really matters. And as you reflect on the Christmas story, and I encourage you to do that, read it several times, read it a month out from Christmas, and read it again as it gets a little closer. Pay attention to characters like Zechariah and Elizabeth, to Joseph and Mary. Anna and Simeon and watch how they waited watch what they did with the weariness that they felt and ask God to help you to join in the rejoicing and the bearing of light will you pray with me Heavenly Father we thank you for the opportunity to rejoice amidst the weariness of this broken world. May we be bearers of your light. May we go into dark places and bring your light into them. May the light dawn in the hearts and souls of those who don't know you, who don't know the hope they have, who don't know that there is cause to rejoice at Christmas.
In Jesus' name we pray.